You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Monday, February the 13th. Cool, bright, dry here in TW11 this morning. Lots to take stock of over the weekend. Perhaps the most notable performance came yesterday at Navan from the returning Blazing Carl, propelling himself to near the head of the Stairs hurdle market after a long, long absence. What a training performance from Charles Burns. Amongst other notable performances over the weekend, Lucia yesterday at Exeter. Will it be the Mayor's Novice Hurdle or will it be the Supreme for her? Nikki Henderson inclined to go either way. And on Saturday, Okan Risk won the bet for hurdlers flagged up on this podcast last week. Paul Nichols extraordinarily drew a blank on Saturday afternoon. And at Warwick, John Bond made heavy weather of winning a much reduced match in the Kingmaker Novices Chase, which rather divided opinion. It may divide opinion through the next few minutes. We'll look at that a bit later. But first of all, I welcome the Racing Post senior writer, Lee Mottersett, to the show from... Melbourne. Wow, what yes. takes you to Melbourne? Uh, what takes to Melbourne, Nick? Well, I'm here for the Asian Racing Conference. Um, three months ago, I was here, as was your good self, for the Spring Carnival and the Melbourne Cup. This time, it's not primarily racing, although we have got Nature Strip running on Saturday at Flemington in the Lightning Stakes. We had a good group one on Saturday at Sandown Park. Jack and I won the All Stakes on a DQ there. Um, but the principal reason for the visit is this Asian Racing Conference. Nick, it's, it's actually really a global racing conference. Um, there are going to be uh, leaders from numerous major racing jurisdictions here in Melbourne for three days of, of uh, seminars and talks and meetings across Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, as with any sort of conference. You have the stuff in the main conference hall, but you'll have lots of different side meetings uh, and power breakfast taking place between some of the sport's biggest leaders. Um, among those are BHA Chief Executive Judy Harrington. She's here with some senior BHA uh, execs. Nevin Truesdale's here, Jockey Club Chief Executive. We've got figures from Ascot, from Goodwood, from RMG, from Sky, from the Totes. It's a big deal in Britain, well represented. It's also one week where uh, Melbourne, where racing Victoria, will really want to show itself in a great light. But it's had a a difficult start to the, the week, Nick. The, the croc Jim McGraw was on the pod last week talking about how the, we're, we're going to have this week a, a court case in New South Wales brought by Racing New South Wales against Racing Victoria. That has developed again today. Anyone who follows Australian racing will know that relations between Melbourne and Sydney and the governing bodies of the two sports there are very much like those that used to take place between Cliff Barnes and J.R. Ewing in Dallas. There is absolutely no love lost between Melbourne and Sydney's governing bodies uh, in racing. It's, it's really kicked off because uh, Peter Valandes, who is the Chief Executive of Racing New South Wales, has drastically altered the, the spring programme in, in Sydney. Um, Figures over here believe that he's basically trying to damage uh, the, the the spring carnival over here by launching races like 
the the Everest and and many others actually through through that carnival. So relations were already bad. They have got worse though. Um, front page story in Sydney's Daily Telegraph today was page nine of its sister paper, the, the Herald Sun, in which they revealed that papers had been uncovered linked to this court case. And the, 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 within those papers, it was claimed that Racing Victoria and the racing authorities of South Australia, Western Australia, Queensland and Tasmania were seeking to have uh, Racing New South Wales forced out of the national governing body, Racing Australia. And more than that, that they're actually planning to form a breakaway group that would in effect exclude racing New South Wales from uh, racing's from the the, the the governance of racing in Australia. Um, racing New South Wales has seen this as a cartel and in breach of anti-competition law, and it's claimed that within these these documents that the attempt was for Peter Valandes to be forced to give up his veto within within Racing Australia and Peter Valandes said in the, the, the news, news stories uh, this morning that the court action simply requests documents indicate one way or the other if there was anti-competitive behaviour. So that wasn't what Racing Victoria would have wanted at the start of its Asian Racing Conference Week but its governing body, its chief executive um, has responded today, Nick, with some really strong comments that further heighten this strong war of words between New South Wales and Victoria. Andrew Jones, the chief executive, said that as all, with all this, that Australian racing is the, the biggest loser. And he's actually claimed that racing New South Wales itself tried to force racing Victoria out of racing Australia. It says it did this in response to a series of races at racing Victoria launched a whipless races. Um, it says that as a response to that race in New South Wales saw limiting whip use as a reason to de-recognise racing Victoria as a racing authority across Australia. He claims that shows you where racing New South Wales is at ethically, mentally and strategically. And he goes on to say that in response to the claims that racing Victoria and its partner governing bodies are trying to force racing New South Wales out of the uh, racing Australia, that it is perfectly entitled to set up a separate entity if it wants to. It is and remains a free country. So really, relations here Nick, between these two governing bodies are absolutely appalling. And in a big, what should be a big week for Australian racing, they've got worse. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I realised there was no love lost, as you put it, but I, I hadn't quite appreciated the scale and bitterness uh, of the enmity, and we'll we'll keep across that story and look forward to monitoring what's happening at the Asian Racing Conference this week. We need to monitor what's happening at home. We particularly needed eyes yesterday on Navin and the Boyne Hurdle and the returning from a very long absence blazing Carl, who thrust himself somewhere near the head of the Stairs Hurdle market with a, a very impressive, efficient performance. His trainer is Charles Burns, not always the easiest man to track down, but I did track him down. And this is what he had to say about the horse this morning. Yeah, he seems fine. Uh, he's, up, he's out the paddock as we speak and seems in good form. It was a long road back to the to the Boyne Hurdle yesterday. Were there, were there ever any moments where you were tearing your hair out thinking this this isn't going to happen for a bit? 
Yeah, there was. Lots, lots, lots of moments, to be honest. Lots of moments. Um, uh, I, I sold half the house during the summer to my brother-in-law. And I, you know, and that, that that even made it more difficult, you know. But um, um, there, was, there was lots of moments. But anyway, we're back now on uh, and And since you sort of got him back on the on the straight and narrow since you've been able to train him properly has it been relatively straightforward to get him to where you are now yeah it has like once he doesn't take a fierce amount of walk like that that was the that was the big plus we had like you know and uh we, we we've had a good three three weeks with him like and uh we were we were happy that he was he was well ready to to take the race you know yeah, that that's quite interesting because it, it tallies exactly with what you what you said a few weeks ago. Because you said, "Oh, I'm not sure I'm going to make it," and then suddenly you said, "Yeah, I'll make it, and I'll make it to the boy in Hurdle." You obviously knew that once you had him, you could get him to the race course yeah. quite quickly. Yeah, as I, as I said, the last the last two or three weeks, they were pretty stressful. So, please God, no, it's the next few <laughs> will go as well. All that being said. Was there any element of the performance that surprised you? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, it's, um, there were just races, was one, one, one forty-five horses, one forty-five to one fifty. So if you want to be beaten him handy with it, we really any chance in the sales all. So, so, so really, the way you looked at it was: listen, if I'm a if I'm a genuine stairs hurdle horse. I want to be winning this, and I want to be winning it well. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. I don't think it does. So I mean, Meeting Grace is a decent house. Like, but she was, you know, he ran in Christmas. I don't know, he was well beat. He ran well. He was well beat. You know, I mean, like you, you want to be beating the houses very well, like to, to have any chance. You know? So, what do you do from now to to Cheltenham? Given given that, as you said, he was. Pretty fit. You can't improve him much fitness-wise. Is it just? Is it just keeping him sound and healthy? Uh, we're looking get an easy week and um, and um, freshen him up, and uh, we'll just keep him as normal. Do you know what I mean? We'll have to we'll have to train him more or less the same as we were going to heaven, and you know, so uh, we can't just leave him in the box. <laughs> Yeah, um, and he 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 was superb over his hurdles yesterday as well. Lovely, patient ride too. So much, so many positives to take out of it. Um, you're you're not one of these trainers who only concentrates on what's right under their nose. You've got a pretty good idea of what's going on around you. Um, you look at that kind of rather motley crew that's in that race at the moment. Who do you th- who do you think are the are the biggest potential dangers in the stairs hurdle to you? I'd uh, I'd imagine the two Irish houses, you know, home by the Lee and uh, Tiopo. So Tiopo seems to have a good time of foot, like you know. I'd imagine he, he he'd be the the main one, you know. Very very impressive the last thing on. Charles Burns there on Blazing Carl interesting saying, look, you know, if I'm going to be taken seriously as a stairs hurdle contender, I wanted to be winning that. He thought he had him fit, so he's not going to improve fitness-wise very much. Just got to keep him going. And uh, talking about the pressures that 
he was under with the horse going wrong, having just sold half of him. So it's a, a good result for that stable for sure, and a short ride as well. And interesting to hear him nominate Tupo as the key danger in the stay settle. What impressed you, Lee, uh, either in Ireland or in England for the rest of the weekend? Um, good question, that Nick. Um, I thought Lucia was really impressive at Exeter on Sunday in that listed Mare's Novices hurdle. Um, she wasn't the biggest name that ran over the weekend, but I love the way she won that race, leaving Nikki Henderson and the owners with that big decision about do they go for the obvious route, the Mare's Novice hurdle with a penalty, should have a penalty for that win at Newbury, or do they play uh, bold and go for the Supreme Novice hurdle, which is seemingly what Nicola Boyneville would want to do. So for me, she was the, the most impressive performance I thought it was great to see Philip Hobbs have his 3,000th winner with the Newbury uh, aficionado Zanza. Um, I thought the bet for hurdle was a fascinating contest. The the way those front two, Auckland Risk and Filey Bay, pulled away over the final two flights was really striking. Great performance from Chris Gordon to get that horse back over hurdles and to win that race, having run him in two uh, race of offences so far this season, but I still think Nick that Emmett Mullins will win a big one this season with Filey Bay. The way he travelled through that race was incredibly eye-catching. Blundered the second last flight. I think he could well win a big one at Cheltenham. And you were at Warwick, where you saw one of the most confusing uh, Grade Two novice chases I can remember for for a while. Particularly, there's only two runners because John Bon at sixteen to one on as he was going down the far side down that line of five fences, I thought he was beaten. And yet he's ultimately come out to be a very dominant winner of a race that had me scratching my head, Nick. I don't know about you at Warwick. Yeah, it was pretty weird to watch, but clearly it was not as weird to ride. I think Aidan Coleman thought he had matters always in control and thought he'd rather got taken by surprise by a bit of enterprise from Harry Skelton halfway down the back. And I said, oh yeah, you made a bit of a mistake there, which is what it looked like. And he went, did I? So clearly it didn't feel as bad as bad as it looked and I think Henderson and Aidan Coleman were keen to stress they'd left the horse a bit short he had a good blow afterwards and if you were going to catch him on the hop any day it was that but it it certainly made me think god wouldn't it have been an interesting race if Gary Moore's horse Haddock Stays Obo had run but there you go if my aunt had it's interesting is it that I say it's interesting that at the moment we have a we have a a Cheltenham picture by we've got a number of horses like John Bond, like Fasal Vega, like Anergamine, that not too long ago were red hot favourites for their championship races at the festival. And to one degree or another, they've all fluffed their lines in recent weeks. And if you are, if you remain a fan of, of those horses, you are now being dangled with pretty tempting prices for their festival targets. Well, it's just it, a case of whether you keep the faith or not. Even on even on a sort of grander level than that, in terms of price, uh, you know, horses who aren't quite so heralded, but were still sort of up there in the betting, uh, uh, horses like Queen's Gamble and Rare Edition, you know, excuses have yeah. emerged for their performances last week. You any price you like now, and they'll probably still go to the festival. So, yeah, you, I think it's still reasonable, Lee, even in these times of like you know, Willie Mullins domination and thirteen straight ones by a horse's name to to forgive one poor run. I think that's right, Nick. I think it absolutely is. But I also think that what we've seen in the last two weeks or so has been a blessing for the festival. We had too many races that looked a a little obvious uh, so far out. And I think what's happened in that last fortnight has helped 
a lot of those races because we should be going into championship events at the festival scratching our heads not sure what what's going to happen and i think there's there's much more interest around them now because some of these big guns have been either beaten or not as impressive as we might have expected and that that applies even to the the red hot gold cup favorite galapanda sean because his performance um in the irish gold cup impressed some people but left others who maybe weren't convinced beforehand about Galapanda Shah a bit less convinced. So I, 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 I'm actually more energised and excited now, Nick, about the Cheltenham Festival than I probably was two weeks ago. Yeah, I would agree with you. I'd tell you what, I'm also energised and excited by the fact that people in horse racing can be incredibly generous. Now, you're, you might be getting a bit sick of it by now, but I will make no apology for mentioning my, my charity auction again. It's going really well, thanks to your immense generosity. We're up to... £29,500 and counting in aid of the Cystic Fibrosis Trust and the Royal Brompton and Harefields Hospitals Trust. Uh, both those charities very dear to, to my heart because my youngest daughter, uh, Xanthi, lives with um, this life-limiting condition. So much is being done, but so much more needs to be done. And I, I know exactly where this money is going to go and it can make a massive, massive difference. And to that end, again, massively grateful to Jane McGiven, to Simon Sweeting at Overbury, uh, to Bjorn Nielsen for donating nominations to Golden Horn, Ardad and Stradivarius, who are absolutely flying. There was a real flurry on the Strad nomination last night, which was great. Golden Horn is 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 flying as well. Uh, Ardad's up to 11,000. Now we've got a new kid on the block. A new man is in. Thanks to David Ward and Tally Ho Stud Starman, the European champion sprinter. How about that? We opened the bidding on him very late last night. So get cracking because there aren't too many more opportunities. He's filling up fast. And if you want to get one of the final nominations and donate to charity, then what better way of doing it? And you never know. You just never know. You might uh, you might do pretty well for yourself here. Starman is now added to the charity auction roster. So uh, he's there. Air Auctioneer, airauctioneer.com forward slash Nick dash luck dash charity dash auction, or just click on the link. Uh, in my Twitter profile, at Nick Luck. Well, the bookmakers Fitzdares have been lending their support to this podcast since episode one. Now here we are on 600 and Hoojima Flip Million, however many episodes in we are, and still Fitzdares are here, uh, still with us. And, and to be honest, I don't really need much of an excuse to, to check in with their chief executive, Will Woodhams, but I've got a good one, because as I speak to him, he's about to launch the um, Fitzdares Club, not just the Fitzdares Club, Fitzdares itself, as, a, as an entity in Canada, which throws up all sorts of interesting questions. So, Will, just tell us a little bit about tonight, obviously coinciding with the Super Bowl. It's very exciting. Yeah, I seem to remember the first Nick Luck Daily was on CFAX and, <laughs> and available on uh, available on 8-Track. Uh, but what a journey we've all been on. And, yes, it's a huge, yeah, big, big step for an independent UK-owned, UK-tax-paying, UK-everything bookmaker uh, that specialises in racing. This is our first market outside Ireland uh, to expand. And so we're really excited because we're having a huge party in Ontario, in Toronto tonight to celebrate the Super Bowl. Um, it was actually going to be um, a Maple Leafs, which is the hockey team, not ice hockey. I hasten to add party, um, but I got the timings wrong because I looked at my clock in the UK and uh, so I, I was I was in the wrong day. But uh, we went to the match last night, but tonight is the Super Bowl and we're very excited. Yeah, it's going to be, it's probably the two even, most evenly matched teams. I, I know this is coming out on Monday morning, I'm guessing, so... Um, 
we should know the result as people listen to this. Yeah, uh, we will know the result. But I, I want to ask you what what prompted this move? Um, why why Canada? Why now? Have you ever met a Canadian? Uh, yes. Uh, I think of uh, yeah. I couldn't think. I couldn't. Uh, well, it legalized in April. We were the first um, to get a license back in April. It's taken us a year working with our tech partners to kind of get all the ducks in a row. Um, but in that me in that time, they've kind of gone through all the challenges that we've had in the UK um, in a year, and now the market is consolidating. Uh, I mean, you could not walk through downtown Toronto without seeing a betting advert. And I think the, the local population is sort of calming on that. So someone who's operating, coming into the market and not doing the big Greg Rodetsky PR, North American stuff, but actually focusing on great customer service and focusing on clients, which, as you know, is what we do in the UK. So we're bringing a completely different thing to the market. And, you know, we've been live about 48 hours and it's been a huge success. So we're so excited to be here. Um, but yes, I think it comes down to we love Canadians. We love Ontario. Toronto is probably the hottest city in the world at the moment. And why wouldn't we bring the Fitzair service to a new market? How difficult has it been logistically? It's challenging. Uh, you know, you know us. We're sixty percent horse racing. Uh, we can't switch on horse racing, so it's uh, you know we're managing with a team here and then covering it with a team in in London. Um, and so we've had to swat up on sports. I, I, I've now been castigated numerous times for saying ice hockey but I went to a game last night so I now understand it uh, and so it's, I suppose it's cutting our teeth on US sports has been really important we really hope to have racing at least at a PMU level um, within a year and then the dream star is obviously fixed odds horse racing both um, it would be just great to people in, in, in Toronto to bet on you know Royal Ascot and Cheltenham which I think is our dream long term but it's it's been a real challenge but uh, you wouldn't believe how f- phenomenal the people are here in, in the province, both the people we've hired and, and the people we meet and the people who come to our party tonight are really like for like with the UK market. Now, obviously, you want to conquer Canada, but clearly your beady eyes will be, will be cast over, over Niagara Falls and beyond. Um, how long term are you thinking here? I think it's see, see how it goes here. Um, see, I think really see... It's a very much um, a wild west over in the states. The two big, unbelievably, the two big states, which is uh, Florida and California, uh, are currently haven't legalized. They will eventually. So those are places we'll be looking to. Um, but they're already, you know, rather like you're discussing on virtually every show, um, the white paper. You're seeing politically some scaling back. It, it's gone a little bit wild west. They're marketing too much. The CPAs, which is what we call cost for acquisitions have gone you know it's not a bet 10 pound get 10 pounds some of them in new york have been five thousand dollars uh matched free bet you know doesn't that sound like a dream uh to punters in the uk um so it's gone a bit crazy so we're waiting really for the market to calm a little but i have got my rather beady fat eye um on florida and california which i think will be very exciting and places that i know you visit um with your horse racing work in this in the u.s places that are really excited so yeah we do have an eye uh, across the niagara falls which are currently unfrozen um but there's plenty um of action i think uh, toronto and what they call the greater toronto area is 60 percent of the canadian market and that's the size of a large state in america in regards to value because uh, Canadians have been betting 
albeit in the grey market for 100 years, uh, probably with UK companies. Mm. But now it's legalised. It's great to be here and putting taxes into their pockets. Uh, talking of markets that are various shades of grey, uh, did you perhaps <laughs> did you by any chance catch my interview with Andrew Rose, Chief Executive of the Gambling Commission, uh, on Sunday morning? Um, I uh, yeah, I mean, I was up <laughs> quite early in the morning here, or maybe I was out quite late. Um, yes, I did see it. It's. Uh, uh, it was fascinating, and I think you've, um, you've set the news agenda for the week, uh, really, and Twitter has gone slightly bananas. Um, I wouldn't comment on it, um, but it's interesting. And But what we are seeing, and the rumours we are hearing, is that the white paper, albeit the Minister of Gambling, changed again on Thursday. Um, we are seeing some... Some solidification, that's a terrible word, of what is going to be here. And really, I think the more um, we use technology in the banking sector to run what we call soft checks, uh, the better. So those those unobtrusive checks on customers that they don't even feel or understand that are being done behind the scenes that the finance sector or uh, banking sector are doing on behalf of the gambling sector, which we pay for, I think that will be the answer to all of this. And I think government needs to drive that through. Um, But I do feel for um, UK horse racing because the, the business is either stopped or gone elsewhere. And that means the money is not going into the pocket of owners, racecourses, horsemen or anyone. Um, And I wish, I know you've been talking about it for a long time, but I wish racing as a whole had been this vocal a year ago. Um, It's not too little too late, but um, we've known this is on the horizon. And so um, we need to address it. But what we might see is, uh, believe it or not, scaling back on what gambling firms are doing currently. We, uh, gambling firms might have taken the initiative and have been too hard on the consumer and taken you know, too much uh, information and checks from them. And what we might see is a calming of that, um, using technology to make that experience better. So I do hope for racing um, that we can find a solution that doesn't affect the money the sport desperately needs. All right, Will Woodham's there, Lee Mosset's still. Lee, did you catch the, the GC interview with, with Andrew Rhodes yesterday on my Sunday show? It was good punchy stuff, um, Nick. Um, really good interview. Um, I remain, though, extremely unconvinced um, by the Gambling Commission's position um, on affordability checks and this this general uh, thrust of an argument that um, it wasn't Osgov um, and that we haven't been telling bookmakers to uh, enforce affordability checks. Well, whilst the there might not have been explicit instructions read that. You only have to look at the the narrative and the discourse that's been put out by the Gambling Commission um, in recent years to understand why bookmakers, um, to an extent, have been doing what they've been doing, although they've been implementing what they believe to be the Gambling Commission instructions in in a variety of ways, often very confusing um, as well. But, yeah, I'm hugely convinced by the Gambling Commission's position on this. Um, and also it was interesting, Nick, to see um, what was put out by Racecourse Media Group yesterday following um, a survey of um, its customers when they revealed that 15% of respondents to a survey had said they either bet or know someone who bets with a black market bookmaker. Um, I thought your point to to Andrew Rhodes that yes, whilst they might be right that there aren't any, there's no data about that. You don't get data about people using 
um, the black market. It's the black market. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And also RMG becoming the latest organization to, to back up this 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 uh, view that this isn't just a theoretical problem. We are seeing it in terms of turnover and money coming into the sport. So strong stuff from RMG, more stuff to to put to DCMS um, when they uh, finalise the the gambling the gambling review white paper. Um, but yeah, I I I, I thought it was a, a really good interview, Nick. And as I say, I. I I, I become ever more convinced that the government's view of the gambling commission is surely reflective of the the message that was put out by the former gambling minister Paul Scully when he spoke to Betting Gaming Council a couple of weeks ago. He was making very clear, I think, his view that the gambling commission had gone too far, and that was a serious slap across the knuckles. And yeah, I, I think it's entirely merited. Lee, I don't know. I don't know how much you've seen of this, but I, an article in the Irish Independent caught my eye last night. Well, of course it did, because it was another expose um, on horse racing by the well-known investigative journalist Paul Kimmage, and this one contains some uh, allegations of a really disturbing nature um, surrounding the the once licensed but no longer licensed trainer in Ireland, Homer Scott, a Jewel Cheltenham Festival-winning trainer, perhaps most famous for horses like the Committee and a murder back in the day he's um in into his 60s now but still keeps north of 40 horses uh, at his stables in in ireland uh, in in county carlo and some some really gruesome details provided by an ex-employee of scott's uh, called michelle who has been speaking to paul kimmage and has provided video evidence it seems to the irish horse racing regulatory board who have secured uh, a a, um, a voluntary handing in of Homer Scott's license, and they say that is one of the most severe sanctions that they can impose. But of course, the case never came into the public domain, and they've not done any more about it. And he is still keeping horses uh, at his premises, um, despite um, Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine inspections. So it's a it's a it's a pretty disturbing read, Lee. Uh, what's being alleged here? Yeah, what is being alleged here, Nick, is, is well, it's disturbing in the extreme. Um, it's, a, it's a piece that you, you, can, you can find quite easily um, by looking on, on social media, but it's, it's not the sort of piece you would, you would want to read without being prepared for it, because some of the um, allegations within it are exceptionally upsetting. Um, the IHRB, um, that the, the, the line that you referenced, Nick, in the piece about having secured the, the surrender of, of Mr. Scott's license without the necessity of a hearing. And they deemed that to be, um, as significant a sanction as, as could be imposed in, in, in some ways. Well, I mean, it's 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 it strikes me, Nick, that if these allegations are all correct, and if Mr. Scott is guilty of what the article alleges he is guilty of, then merely not having a license is not sufficient punishment for what he is alleged to have done. And that point you make, Nick, 
that he still has a significant number of horses on his land. Well, again, if he did what he's alleged to have done, I don't think I would want to see any horses on his land, no matter what he might have achieved as a racehorse trainer. Um, it's the sort of story that does horse racing enormous damage, I think, when, when people read it. Because as we've said before, when you get any case like this, racing's biggest line of defence when anybody accuses the sport of being uh, something that shouldn't exist and that it's a, they, when they allege it's a cruel sport and that uh, it, it will be better off banned. Racing's best line of defence is that people who go into horse racing do so because they love horses and they set out to give horses the best possible care at all times. When people read this sort of piece, it badly, badly damages that argument. Because whilst you can argue that in any sector, in any industry, you're always going to have some bad apples, the damage that a few bad apples can do is, is huge. So this is desperately bad stuff. And I would not be surprised if, if the IHRB was uh, asked to revisit its view on whether Mr. Scott um, had been sufficiently sanctioned. Yeah, the allegations include serial burials of, of horses unlawfully, um, anecdotes of, of horses rotting flesh and, and, and being chewed out by dogs, um, a 22-year-old mare being suspended from the roof of a, of a barn in a sling because she'd collapsed as a, as a stallion tried to cover her numerous times, even though she was in unfit condition. Uh, and the the list the list frankly frankly goes on, and I'm not ghoulish enough to to read out every single allegation, but you can read them for yourself in Paul Gimmage's piece in the in the Irish Independent, and it put me in mind Lee of the conversation I had with Lydia on Friday when she was talking about the relative not insignificance, but the relative importance of, for example, the whip debate to the entire welfare conversation. And you know what's really important in terms of you know, convincing everybody that that we have a we have a um, a, a, a genuine and, um, a, and and real social license to to carry out the the sport. On which note, of course, we should say that today is the first day that the that the new whip rules come into force in the in the UK. So everybody holds their breath somewhat. They do. And just going back to what you, you said there, Nick, about what Lydia had spoken of on in Friday's pod. And I, I, I thought, you know, as ever, she, she spoke tremendous uh, sense because although the whip is a, a big deal um, in racing, I think most people would acknowledge and accept even governing bodies that it is a perception issue i don't think governing bodies would allow the whip to be used at all if they believed it was a cruel implement per se now i, I absolutely understand why the whip has to be an issue for governing bodies because perception is often the same thing as reality in terms of what people see and understand what what they see but governing bodies can never take their eye off the ball when it comes to real welfare issues that's going to be a, a talking point through the week here in in melbourne there are going to be sessions on 
on on welfare as as they as they should be um not just on how horses are treated after they leave horse racing but something i've referenced before what happens to all those horses who are bred for horse racing but never make the race course you know that that as a as a subject is is of massive importance um and they are the real issues that that governing bodies have to devote most attention to and they 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 do devote attention time thought and money to them but they're the, the ones we really have to be pushing hardest on as an industry but as you say the new whip rules do come into force in britain today in some ways it's going to be eight days of phony war because we won't actually learn anything until what a week on tuesday when the new whip panel um meets i would go into this nick relatively hopeful that some of the the talk of potential armageddon will have been overblown um i hope so anyway um bha have been having meetings with the pga and a number of senior jockeys ryan moore brian hughes harry skelton tom scudamore um the, there isn't a suggestion that pga was pushing to have the uh the implementation the launch of these new rules deferred until after the the spring festivals there's obviously the potential for cheltenham to be a uh, a big whip new story but i i would be hopeful that after this bedding in period um where i think jockeys and officials have learned plenty and i i, I, I think it's important to be stressed officials as well as as jockeys and i think there's now a hopefully a better understanding than there was at the start of the the bedding in period about how particularly the shoulder height rule will be enforced um, and how it will be interpreted by by officials. I remain hopeful that things won't be as nearly as bad as as some have forecast um, from now on. That there is always hope in life, Nick, and I've, I've definitely got a hope on this one, and, and I hope that hope is justified. Now, I'm very pleased this morning to announce the beginning of a new partnership with the, the Nick Luck Daily podcast. We're partnering up with our friends in France at Arionio um, because like them, we're committed to uh, the improvement of performance, health and welfare of equine athletes. And they've developed in the last few years, the Equimeter solution, which has been taken up um, amongst many leading stables in Europe. And we'll be focusing on, on some of those and the benefits of it over the next few weeks here on, on the podcast. I'm delighted to welcome in uh, Anne Wane from Arionio now. Anne, just tell us a little bit about the, the background to, to what you're doing here and exactly what this technology is. Sure, Nick. Hello. Um, so basically, to give you a bit of context on how Equimeter was born, it really all started with the awareness that all our human Olympic athletes were being monitored to improve performance uh, and avoid injuries and really the realization that no comprehensive and scientifically backed up tool existed, uh, knowing that our, our athletes, our horses couldn't even talk. Um, so nine years ago, uh, thanks to, you know, a team of uh, passionate uh, and bold uh, believers that were crazy enough to, you know, raise million and afterwards gain the trust of trainers, um they got the idea to start Aereo Neo uh, with its uh, equimeter which now international leader in terms of health fitness performance monitoring with a presence in over 36 countries today counting more than 
600 users and beyond uh, a thousand uh, active uh, monitors thanks to unprecedented heart rate speed locomotion amongst other fully automated platform and hands-on support to give you a bit of insight of what we do and how we came up so in we've heard of, of heart rate monitoring for for a long time in 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 the sport why is this a more kind of all-round product? What does what does this give you in terms of in terms of data uh, and assistance in in getting your horses to the to the best possible shape? Sure. So first, you need to know because we're scientifically validated and also research and veterinary tool. On the trainer's perspective, he's going to get the utmost precision, interpretation, and content. We also offer a lot of webinars, white pages, blogs. So along with training and racing optimization, we also are hands-on prevention and horse welfare. As such, we also work with worldwide universities, racing institution on a lot of research and ambitious projects. Uh, so what we sell today is not just a piece of hardware. Our trainers are getting a new team member. Equimator is also the creation of a new job, the one of horse data analysts with our dedicated data representative service for full support. So what the trainer will get is a monitor that's gonna get all vitals. So of course, I said previously, heart rate for any uh, fitness related question, um, recovery, pain, we're able to detect signs of pain and pathologies. Speed, of course, with all his, your horse's intervals, his acceleration profile, which can we can talk about it later on, but could assist on the best distance to run. Uh, but we really rigid parameters. It would be maybe a bit too lengthy to discuss right now uh, to see if everything is going well in your horse's uh, regular routine. Uh, we also offer the added advantage now that you know there's a lot of international meetings. I just came back from the Dubai Carnival. Uh, the added advantage of having a remote monitoring solution to really understand how the horse traveled, how he's handling the new training condition, to see if training needs to be adapted uh, and understand uh, local performance as well. Uh, we could get a lot of other... Yeah, go ahead. Liz. No, no, go, go on, Anne. No, I was going to say it's also a great communication tool, especially nowadays, either with owners or syndicates. Uh, it's a good and efficient way to also communicate what's going on with the horse, how he's evolving, for example. And this is just a, a small um, device just strapped onto the girth. Exactly. It's uh, very efficient. You actually have uh, an automatic chip, RFID chip reader. You know exactly which horse is recorded. You turn it on, you put it on the girth, you're ready to go. Get back at the stable, turn it off, and repeat the process for your whole uh, morning routine. And why not there? And you can find out more about uh, Equimeter by visiting training.arioneo.com. Well, the world of entertainment lost a towering figure last week with the death of Burt Bacharach. Burt Bacharach was also a hugely significant figure in the world of horse racing, which people in America and California who are involved in the sport may know. People in the rest of the world and younger listeners may not quite so much. But I, I would draw your attention to an article that I chanced upon on the back end of last week by 
the greatly respected American turf writer, Jay Hovday, who joins me now. Uh, Jay, you, you knew Burke Bacharach pretty well. He was part of the fabric of horse racing in, in California. What made him so special to, to our sport? Well, indeed he was, Nick, and thank you so much for reaching out. Um, you know, we've had so many celebrities uh, sort of uh, come in and out of the racing game for so long, and each time one of them appears, uh, they tend to suck all the air out of the room for a few uh, a few starts, a few horses, and then disappear into the ether, never to be seen again. But uh, Bert Bacharach was in for the long haul. He was no dabbler. He became fascinated with the sport in the 1960s. He chose Charlie Whittingham as his first trainer and got his first stakes winners with Charlie Whittingham. He moved on to other wonderful trainers throughout the years and and as early as uh, january of this year he won his last stakes race in partnership with someone else so you can you can see that the arc of his involvement with the sport was was significant just in time served if nothing else but more than that he really invested himself and his um his emotional energy in the in the game he loved his horses loved them dearly loved to go out and and just hang out at the at the track, usually at Del Mar in the summer when things were a little bit more quiet on the uh, the concert circuit. And he lived next door to Whittingham at the beach, and he'd go out uh, late in the morning, as Charlie would point out. But he would go out mornings anyway. And uh, and and Bert was a kind of an ever present uh, individual. Um, and and those of us in racing became sort of inured to the fact that well, this is the most famous popular writer of popular music in the world and he's also sitting over there uh having a hot dog and getting ready to go bet the fourth um and his his horse is going to be running in the stakes race later today when he reached the the apogee of his his uh his uh his good fortune in the sport in the um, early to mid 90s with those two three-year-olds of his uh afternoon delights and soul of the matter both of them took him to the uh, to the Kentucky Derby. Uh, neither one were embarrassed, but neither one hit the board, unfortunately. But as we know, soul of the matter, were it not for Cigar, would have won the first Dubai World Cup for Burt Bacharach. And that in itself should tell us something about uh, just how how Burt was uh, reveled in his good fortune in the game, but also was humbled by how much it took to get to even approach that point. And as you say, we, we, we were quite used in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and long before that to major stars of, of the entertainment world getting out to Hollywood Park and particularly to Santa Anita, down to Del Mar in the summer. To what extent for him was his involvement in horse racing a counterpoint to the, the starry nature of, of Hollywood? To what extent was it something that, that brought him down to earth, made it made life real. Well, he always would say that it's, uh, it's the greatest de-stressor uh, possible, uh, which is kind of uh, goes counterintuitive to those of us in the sport or know people in the sport that thinks it's one of the most stressful pursuits uh, imaginable. But yes, the uh, the the you know the hyper tense uh, world of show business uh, and uh, the music world was. Uh, was was pretty uh, pretty wild compared to kind of the laid back. Um, you know, you can win one out of six races or five races and still be a winner. Uh, if you if you do that with your 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 records, uh, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, and if you flop uh, one out of every or four out of every five concerts, you're not going to be asked 
to do many concerts. But so so Bert was, yeah, he he, and he was also a laid back guy himself. As 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 white hot as his talent was, and as as intellectually sophisticated as his music was, his melodies, uh, and how difficult they were for some, uh, for, I should say challenging they were for, for many of the, uh, the, the vocal talents to embrace them. Uh, he was kind of a laid back guy. He loved, he just, he loved to hang out. And, and, you know, those of us that were lucky enough to kind of be at the very outer rim of his inner circle, uh, in horse racing, we're, we're just, we were never, we were always impressed, but never intimidated. And uh, just the the man was just so full of love for his music, his art, and uh, and uh, his horses and his family that you you couldn't help but just say, "Oh, look, it's Bird over there. It's it's going to be a good day at the races." All right, thanks to Jay. Thanks to all my guests today. And Lee is still with me. And Lee has a tip for you for today. And I'm going to go uh, with a horse trained by um, friend of the pod and bet for hurdle winning trainer, Chris Gordon. Um, Nick, he's got a horse called Lord Baddersley um, running this afternoon at Plumpton in the three o'clock. The tie, the knot wedding catering novices handicap chase. Um, he's a horse who absolutely adores um, Plumpton. I said he's only actually run twice at the track. He's run really well both times um, at Plumpton. Um, he returned or reverted from hurdles to fences at Kempton over Christmas, run a big race behind Balco Coastal. I think he's um, a horse who is probably a bit better in his 125 rating that he's running off at Plumpton this afternoon. And I think he'll win for Chris Gordon and Tom Cannon in the three o'clock. Lord Baddersley. All right, Lee, thanks so much for your help today. Thank you very much for listening. That was Monday, February the 13th. I'm off to Centre Parks. Wish me luck. Bye bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.